Thank you for listening to CFB Talks Digital Assets. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. It is not intended, nor should it be considered an invitation or inducement to buy or sell any of the underlying instruments cited, including, but not limited to, crypto assets, financial instruments, or any instruments that reference any index provided by CF Benchmarks Limited. This recording is not intended to persuade or incite you to buy or sell a security or securities noted within. Any commentary, interviews, and discussions are opinions only and should not be considered a personalized recommendation. Please contact your financial advisor or professional before making any investment decision. Some of the underlying instruments cited within this recording may be restricted to certain customer categories in certain jurisdictions. So, so basically, um, permissionless was last week. How, how was that, uh, Gabe? So CF Benchmarks was there under the, uh, our parent company, uh, Kraken, who had a fantastic, you'd want to call it a booth, but really it was, it was a pretty large percentage of the, the open floor of the conference center. And, uh, I mean, they had all sorts of cool stuff set up and, uh, yeah, Williams Formula One partnership, of course, that we we've been doing this year. They had the Formula One car actually like right in the middle. I was going to ask you, was, was it a replica or was it the real thing? It was a, a replica or I would oh, say like the okay. model car. Doesn't like it's not, count. It doesn't it's count. not the actual. <laughs> and it's still, even though it probably wasn't, you know, a, a race, the race car that they'll be, you know, doing the upgrades to or, you know, putting on the track. It was garnering a lot of attention for anyone that was coming through the area. And they had, you know, a cool racing simulator off in the corner. They had a nice digital graffiti wall. So you could get like these spray paint cans and create kind of artwork. Um, so there's just a lot of interesting stuff to, uh, to kind of pass the time and, and to, to meet new people. And I would say it was a very focused group. I would say a lot of, uh, let's say new interesting ideas were centered on, I would say, DeFi and, and more of an institutional space, which kind of surprised me. I saw a lot of, I think, institutionally focused projects and booths. So that was pretty neat to see since we do tend to, you know, be kind of more exclusive to that side versus the retail side. Another thing that's been happening in the news, apart from this major conference that a lot of um, crypto, institutional crypto participants uh, went to, is that Franklin Templeton, a very, very large um, investment management firm, Particularly focusing, I think, Gabe, on mutual funds and um, retirement funds, if I'm not mistaken, has actually filed, joined the fray and filed uh, an application to list um, a Bitcoin ETF in, in the States. What's happening with that, uh, Gabe? Yeah, that was that was pretty uh, pretty big news that happened while we were there down in, uh, in Austin for permissionless. Uh, so yeah, you had Franklin Templeton, which is one of the largest asset managers in the world. I think they manage close to, let's just say, one and a half trillion or so. Um, and you know, just like other asset managers, they're interested in, I think, moving more to ETFs on their, uh, product suite. And, uh, it was really, really neat to see them also jump into the race, um, or into the queue, you could say, uh, for a spot Bitcoin ETF. And actually, you know, while we we're down there, it kind of reminds me, um, one of the, the co-hosts of the permissionless event was Bankless, who happens to be. Uh, we, we happen to be a sponsor of Kraken is at least, um, and we we're fortunate enough to get, you know, a nice little, nice little shout out on, uh, on their last week's roll up episode. And they talked about CF benchmarks and how we've created this, 
I would say, you know, these, these, these reference rates that a lot of these ETF filers are using further spot Bitcoin ETFs. They have $1.4 trillion in assets under management. Uh, so that's, that's kind fine. of, that, yeah. I so, feel like I should have heard. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I should know them, yeah. Uh, they have filed for the spot Bitcoin ETF. Uh, so they, there's another big trad institution pushing for this as well. The interesting thing about this one is that Kraken is actually the Oracle, so for the prices. Uh, it's actually not Kraken specifically, it's CF Benchmarks, which is wholly owned by Kraken. So Kraken subsidiary is doing the, the spot Bitcoin pricing. And one of the analogies that I thought was pretty neat is he he called us uh, like an oracle. He said, you know, we're we're, we're yeah, an oracle absolutely. for yeah. for the price, which of course you know we're not an oracle. But if that helps, I think kind of bridge the gap of you know the tradfi world to the digital asset space, and you know that that makes sense because you know we do provide you know a price that our uh, licensees are subscribed to that l allows them to execute either you know striking a nav or settling derivative contracts it's it's very similar to how an oracle provides you know real world data to execute smart contracts so i thought that was a nice little shout out um, by them you're listening to cfb talks digital assets the home of informed conversation about crypto for institutions building the future of finance presented by cf benchmarks I'm Ken O'Delegate, Head of Content, and I'm joined by Gabe Selby, our Lead Research Analyst. Hey guys, thank you for joining us for another episode of CFB Talks Digital Assets. So the theme of this show is uh, it's going to be another quarterly attribution report edition. Now, what does that mean? As the um, preeminent term, digital asset index and portfolio index provider for institutional crypto market participants, particularly investment firms, um, we obviously are involved in portfolio reconstitutions and rebalances as a part of the sort of administration process of, of these portfolio indices. So for added value, what we do as well when these rebalances come round is also produce um, these quarterly attribution reports. Um, we've, we've been doing that for about a year. Essentially what these are, are deep dives into the market um, using our CF digital asset classification structure, the CF DAX, as a taxonomy for the crypto market. We're going to start, start off with a market recap, broad overall market recap of how the crypto market has performed during the rebalancing period. We're going to look at um, some overarching takeaways from uh, this period. We're going to look at some potential outperformers and some particular underperformers um, in the period, and maybe just generally some precise metrics about how the broader market has performed. So Gabe, um, if we want to start off with that market recap, how would you characterize this um, you know, June to September stretch for the crypto markets? Yeah, I would say in summary, it's a, it was all about ETF filings and court rulings. So, you know, starting off with the big one, which uh, happened sometime in mid-June, shortly after we published the, the Q2 QARs, we saw um, BlackRock be the first mover and reignite kind of this this interest in getting a spot Bitcoin ETF approved, which of course created a lot of uh, movement in the markets and sent Bitcoin prices uh, above 30,000, I would say for the first time since April. We've of, of course kind of retraced back down to that 25,000 uh, level of support. And now we're kind of trading uh, range bound between 25 and 27 at the time of recording. But, you know, it's, it's definitely, we've talked about this, you know, in previous shows, you know, we've covered this uh, with Sui, our CEO of the firm, and it's just the significance of this, I think, is just 
it cannot be overstated. Um, you know, for the first time, having this vehicle that trades just kind of like a common stock on an exchange, um, you can access it through, you know, your brokerage account. And it's more importantly going to be in an ETF structure, which on average ETFs just have lower expense ratios than, you know, other fund structures like mutual funds. And, um, you know, they're also more tax efficient. So it's, it's a big deal to, to, you know, for the first time get, you know, uh, a lot of these institutions on board with trying to get these, uh, these things out in the wild again and approved. And yeah, so it's, it's exciting to see, but we're in a waiting game now, right? So yeah. to wait and see what yeah, happens. I mean, you, you can't underestimate the familiar wrapper, you know, the ability to just look on your brokerage account and, you know, if you so choose, um, investigate the potential of buying crypto through the wrapper of the ETF, which everyone knows and some, you know, most of us love, um, rather than, you know, having to obviously get involved with private keys, um, get a crypto wallet, uh, an online one or hardware one, explore an exchange, all of that stuff. It's just so much of, of a more direct experience. Um, and, you know, that's only, can only be positive for, for crypto, right? Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you think about this, if you want to kind of speculate or imagine what the future could hold, um, you know, if we assume that uh, the world or the U.S. gets a, a spot Bitcoin ETF, you could envision things like Bitcoin being adopted into a much wider audience because of the sheer fact that, like you said, it's it's on the it's, it's through your traditional brokerage account. It's on these regulated exchanges um, and for me, as someone who used to be, you know, in the portfolio management side of the business, you know, there's opportunity for clients that have the risk capacity and are interested in investing in, in Bitcoin to have, a, you know, a strategic long-term allocation, you know, across their IRAs, their brokerage accounts, or even their 401ks, um, because for the first time you're getting this type of vehicle. So it's 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 unlocking, I think, a, a really big step. You know, if we assume that this gets approved and we move forward with it, it would unlock a really, uh, it, w- it would complete a, a really big step towards this institutional adoption narrative that we talked about, you know, last year a lot in our in our outlook. And uh, so it's 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 great to see, you know, after all that we've kind of gone through um, last year that we're we're, we're seeing, you know, the, the interest is definitely picking back up. Um, certainly, essentially, obviously, it's been a implied and sometimes a very palpable underpinning of the market, the price action in the crypto market. And then, you know, a couple of other influences, um, they were a while ago, but, you know, they're important to say because they actually, the effect of these did show at the time in terms of the price action. And now we've seen a little bit, as you suggested, Gabe, a bit of a sort of like decline or a bit of a deterioration in the price action to, to you know, maybe about a couple of weeks ago before we saw this um, uh, again, another uptick. Uh, XRP, the XRP ruling had a similar sort of impulsive uh, uh, impact on the market. Um, and then additionally, the soft landing scenario that appears to be emerging or did at least appear to be emerging during the rebalancing uh, period has, as well has actually played towards the more positive uh, sentiment option. I think you, you'd, you'd agree with that, Gabe? You know, just to jump back onto the XRP or the Ripple case, you know, that's the, I would say that was a a landmark decision that you, that we saw um, come out. And frankly, you know, I think a lot of us were a bit surprised 
on maybe the end result, uh, just not knowing really when when this was going to, you know, when the judge was going to make their decision. But it appears, you know, for the first time that we we had the courts say in not all circumstances, a token is considered a security. So it's it's definitely not, a, you know, a set in stone kind of 100 percent sure we're, we're in the clear. We got regulatory clarity, et cetera, et cetera. But you can't ignore the fact that, you know, this is a big deal and it's it's a good step in the right direction for uh, digital assets and, and trying to get a better understanding of how they should be classified. And so we, we just have to kind of, I guess we're going to be waiting and seeing on that one too. It makes sense that we get that impulsive price action and then a little bit of a retracement back down. But, you know, for, uh, you know, for Ripple, XRP and other tokens, such as Stellar, who's, who's I, I would say a direct competitor to Ripple, they all, they all saw a lot of, you know, positive tailwinds um, over this over this past quarter, and including those tailwinds is probably the, the macro environment, which is what you were you were mentioning, right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, because obviously that's continuing to play out as we in real time, right? So, um, in terms of the impact, ongoing impact, and maybe some of the you know short term historical impact within the rebalancing period, how would you actually elaborate on that? Yeah. yeah well, I just think. We really saw, I'd say, more of a consensus agreement that a potential soft landing is now possible. And I am more personally in the camp that we are not out of the woods yet. Um, it's, it's kind yeah. of always eerie when you get the entire crowd to kind of be on one side. And it yeah. did seem like the you know risky assets were performing pretty well throughout the past quarter, including digital assets like crypto. Um, and a lot of that, you know, could be, you could probably attribute some of it to the fact that, you know, the, the U.S. economy is uh, stronger than many people have feared. So, you know, remember in March, we had a lot of bank blowups. Um, we've also witnessed the, I'd say the most aggressive Fed rate hiking cycle in, uh, since, since the 80s or late 70s. Yep. Yep. Um, so there's just a lot of um, uncertainty that would have normally crept into, I think, sentiment and fear. And, and probably driven uh, the macro environment into a worse place. And so far, it's really been, I think, a tale of the, the U.S. consumer just being in better shape than many have uh, predicted. So we, we still have to wait and see on that one, too, because I, it, it is concerning for me whenever you kind of get these, all everybody on the same side and everybody believing, it's usually the opposite yeah. tends to happen i think but you're a, you know, you're a classic you're a classic contrarian in that case again because it's a it's a classic contrarian signal not everyone's a con i mean by by very by definition i think you know it's a minority pursuit but um it's a classic contrarian signal and quite often it does play out right if you've got everyone i think there was a saying i come some old folks saying you know everybody's wrong if not but you know not everybody's wrong if everybody's right or something like that and, right yeah you know, just just one of those things where it's just a bit too much consensus uh to be comfortable right yeah yeah exactly so uh, let's just wait and see i mean a lot of uh now models i think are showing pretty i would say pretty optimistic readings for gdp growth and um you know the, the unemployment rate really hasn't budged higher and inflation and largely has has continued to trend lower although we've had some some up and down ratings so we'll just yeah we just have to wait and see um but again we we always try to tell um any listener or anyone who's interested in uh, you know investing into the space that they should have a longer term time horizon try not to time the market because that's 
um, yep. you know, that can be a fool's game or, a, you know, a kind of a yep. mo- uh, thing to do. So, so yeah, talk, talk, talking about the markets, let's try and get into some of the details here. And uh, we want to, I believe, start off with a closer look at the CF Broadcap Index uh, performance during the rebalancing period. With this, Gabe, before we actually move on to that, maybe we should actually give a brief outline about the variance of this CF Broadcap Index. Um, so take it away. Yeah, so our CF Broadcap series is, uh, there's two variants. And the, the idea of both is to basically create an institutional benchmark for the digital asset universe. Um, the way we define that is we, we basically screen um, using our, uh, our exchange criteria and our free float criteria to create a list of tokens that meet these requirements. So that basically eliminates a lot of tokens that we deem as uh, not being investable at the institutional level. So we do look at the, you know, the, if, if the tokens are listed on exchanges, that we deem to be, you know, reputable and meet our criteria. We're also making sure that there's enough volume for, and there's enough of a free float market cap for a bigger institution to take positions into uh, these assets. And um, when you look at the digital asset space, it's very unique because you tend to have such a high concentration between the two largest digital tokens. That would be Ether and Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin being the larger one, actually. But you know, we created another variant that will allow you to basically underweight these two tokens to some degree and then increase the weighting for the bottom portion of the portfolio. And so boost those weights up a little bit. So this gives you more of like, a, let's just say like a, a mid cap, small cap tilt on the on the index. But we give, you know, the the users two options. You can use the free float market cap variant, which will be just a pure market cap, free float market cap weighting scheme, in which case you're going to see a lot of, you know, Bitcoin and, and Ether in there. Um, and then, or you could use the diversified floating broad cap index, which will reduce those weights um, just slightly, but also give you a little bit more exposure to the other tokens that are uh, making up the rest of the portfolio index. Yeah, sure. So, so obviously the two variants are there to serve different needs. Clearly, the diversified variant enables um, potential uh, users of the index clients and so forth to actually have a, if you like, broader version of the broad cap, a more inclusive version of the broad cap. Um, now, that obviously does dovetail onto what I'd like to ask you next, then, Gabe. Clearly, as we know, the OG Bitcoin makes up the somewhat um, overarching percentage of the overall crypto market capitalization. And, you know, together with Ether, you know, they pretty much dominate the entire capitalization. And I understand that the dominance has continued, but can you give me some contours and maybe some color on that? You can study the differences between the free float and the diversified, and it will kind of tell you a story in itself. But what we saw over the past quarter, I would say, is you saw an increase in Bitcoin dominance overall in the crypto market. It makes a lot of sense since a lot of the headlines were primarily focused on the institutional adoption step of potentially getting a spot ETF unlocked here in the US. So most uh, investors, I think, are trying to price in, you know, to some degree, uh, what that would, how that would impact Bitcoin's price, uh, you know, going forward. So it makes sense that Bitcoin, I think, had a little bit more of just overall support. It wasn't always like that throughout the quarter. There was a period there after the Ripple ruling that a lot of these altcoins, which is, uh, you know, kind of a jargony way of saying, you know, anything but Bitcoin, 
um, and, and uh, they they did outperform for a short stint there, but their price action kind of faded. So you, oh, in the end, over our observation window, we did find that Bitcoin dominance was another theme again for for this this quarter. Thinking about Ether, where does that fit in? Clearly, it's the number two, a massive number two. But um, in terms of its performance, you know, really top level. Where how how did that uh, how did that fare? Yeah, well, in this case, I think you can just look at what people are or what firms are doing, and we've already seen one one firm uh, who, uh, fortunately, we were working with file for a spot ETF. So, yeah. um, it, I think the roadmap is is pretty clear that you know if if we were to get a spot Bitcoin ETF, one could see Ether yeah, being sense. next. So it makes total so, sense that you know we've seen I think institutional interests in both of those two kind of like the mega mega cap tokens is what I typically call them just continue to kind of trend higher since since this news was broken sure and um in terms of the broader market we've just entered or we are in a, a period that generally has some kind of seasonal resonance or seasonal echoes I think September is generally not the best time for buying crypto or being involved in the crypto market. Well, that I'm saying look, it's not, not financial advice, but generally the observation has been that September's have not been that great. What is the sort of, what is the sort of take for this current September? Yeah. So yeah, I'm not too big of a seasonality uh, person, no, but no, uh, I, I, I do find it interesting that sometimes these historical patterns pretty apparent and repeat themselves. And so if we look at, you know, Bitcoin, on the September month, it just tends to not do very well. So we did a nice little analysis in the in the quarterly attribution report, which which looked at the past five Septembers, and uh, the the average performance of the past five uh, Septembers was was negative eight percent, and and all five were were negative. So you know it, it, it's funny because I think at the time of recording, you know we we look at Bitcoin price so far month to date in September, and it's actually up four percent. So it's breaking this trend. And it's a good, uh, good lesson or a good thing to note that you know, once everybody's looking at the same thing, it, it does make sense that something doesn't pan out in, in markets. That's usually how how things sometimes go. So um, the other main point about the seasonality was to focus on the next month. So yeah. once you get through September, historically speaking, October has actually been the best performing price for Bitcoin. That's so. Kind of it just goes to show you that if you do have kind of a longer time horizon, <laughs> yeah, um, and you're not trying to time things, um, just you even know, two months, two months, <laughs> yeah. yeah, two months. It's yeah. not not too long. So just wait, wait around the corner, and uh, that has historically averaged around sixteen percent over the past five years for Bitcoin. So a, a pretty, uh, I would say, a pretty healthy return, especially when we look at the year-to-day figures, which is, has obviously outperformed other other asset classes. Sure, sure. So, what can you tell us about some of the actual leaders? Let's talk. Let's start with it. We're talking to talk about leaders and laggards of the broader market, as seen through the lens of our CF broad cap index, or to the two variants of that. What are we looking at in that respect? Yeah, one thing that I think really uh, surprised a lot of uh, investors and market participants was the the sharp rise in Bitcoin Cash. So, kind of along yeah, this theme me. of institutional adoption. Um, you had a, a, a crypto exchange called EDX launch, which is very just focused on doing, you know, institutional transactions of, of digital assets. 
and they have kind of a they have a very narrow scope on the assets that they list on this exchange for that reason. And I think a lot of folks were surprised to see that Bitcoin Cash was one of the I think four tokens that they were going to be offering on their exchange of trade that really uh, sent Bitcoin Cash's price. I think it, it rose as much as over like two hundred percent on this news, and so that was That's... definitely a, le- a leader. Um, I would right. say another another leader in the you know like the DeFi space. We saw Maker's MKR token uh, that rose over seventy percent, um, which really stood out compared to the other protocols in in that category. So I think there's just a lot of enthusiasm with them. They're they're trying to build more of a presence in sure. uh, the Asia market and specifically in South Korea. And uh, they've, okay. Okay. they've seen, you know, stable coins have obviously been a secular trend in the digital asset space and uh, they continue to do so. And, and Maker is one of the, the big uh, operators in that space. Sure, sure. And in terms of the less fortunate um, uh, sort of uh, constituents, um, what are the standouts on the downside? Yeah, so there, you got to take the the good with the bad. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, there was a few protocols that did not fare pretty uh, fare well at all. And um, so we, we saw our on, our on our culture segment, ApeCoin. The ApeCoin DAO um, had a little bit of a controversy um, over the past three months. Basically, there was a tweet that showed some of the leaders of the community and their payouts. And uh, really, I think, create a lot of, I would say, conflict between, you know, the the community and uh, also the people that are running the DAO, and it sent the price ApeCoin down uh, quite significantly. And similar to this, but not quite, uh, it was more of like an operational issue. Was the curve uh, in the DeFi space? It had one of the larger hacks happened, so that also was one of the major laggards in in our uh, in our indices. Um, so of course, you know, we, we had some victories, I think, you know, you said it in, in passing, it was like two steps forward, one step back, but overall we're still, you know, advancing and, uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just thinking still finally about the, um, broader market, the other thing that, um, I think stands out from the QAR, according to uh, your rendering of it, you know, cause obviously Gabe is a um, preeminent driver of the production of these uh, reports is the an apparent change in the regime specifically with regards to correlations so my understanding is that if you take the broader market maybe if you take specific um tradfi cohorts or tradfi proxies that the general trend of correlations may have shifted during the rebalancing period maybe you should give some give us some some additional detail on that gate so every time we do this exercise we like to do an analysis just looking at the correlations across various traditional asset classes and compare that to our market proxy, which we use the CF uh, floating broad cap index. And we've purposely uh, designed this index to go pretty far back so researchers can have uh, a definitive you know, market proxy that they can study. And uh, to this point, you know, we, we looked at the correlations um, over the past 90 days and saw that they've really come down when uh, when you compare these to traditional risky assets such as equities like the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ 100 index. Um, so it's, it's creating this potential for a delinkage or an unsynchronized relationship for digital assets, which is something that we saw before, I would say pre-2020 or pre-COVID, you, a lot of uh, 
people would comment that, you know, Bitcoin was mostly uncorrelated asset or had some diversifying potential. Um, since then, we've seen, uh, you know, with, with I would say, the, the macro environment, we've, we, we went through a, a great shock where we saw a bunch of liquidity come into the market. And then we're seeing liquidity now being pulled out. That, that makes sense that, you know, Bitcoin and other digital assets really kind of moved in lockstep. With uh, the relationship between rates or equities or commodities or even alternatives, um, but now that you're seeing this kind of reversal and you're seeing other narratives take hold, we may see a potential shift in in this relationship, which w- would benefit, I would say, investors because right. if you're looking at different types of you know investments that you can utilize in your portfolio, having something that's uncorrelated tends to reduce the overall risk of the portfolio without sacrificing their the return to the same degree. So that's why you always had Harry Markowitz, who was a Nobel laureate, who always said there's I think the only free lunch in investing is diversification. <laughs> um, that's, you know, a great quote. And it's just a reminder that you, you you know, you do have these relationships that are in markets and you can study them and and pick your, you know, your positioning accordingly, depending on what your view should could be going forward in the future. So that was really interesting about the correlations and um, other standout price action, market action from the rebalancing period, Gabe. Talking about the overarching takeaways that you would uh, spotlight following uh, this uh, QAR um, exercise that we normally do, what would you say really sticks in the mind from this one? Well, I think... You know, not to hammer this point home too much, but it seems like the institutions are back. So, you know, we we did a nice chart showing the open interest on CME, Bitcoin, and Ether futures. And you can see that they're pretty much at their all-time highs. They've really kind of uh, trended upwards since the news in June. Um, But more interestingly, is if you look at the net positioning for speculators, and what is a speculator... um, uh, CFTC, which is the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, they uh, define this as you know anyone who doesn't have any commercial interests to be in the futures market is considered a speculator in the market. And according to their data, uh, the net positioning for speculators for for Bitcoin and Ether is is now uh, you know reapproaching neutral to positive territory in this trajectory. So it's interesting to see how you know in this case. Uh, you know, the price action might still be going sideways or range bound. Um, and the spot volumes are also, uh, you'd say, pretty low. But if you go to the institutional market space, which is on the CME with the Bitcoin and Ether futures, you're seeing a pickup there in the sentiment positioning and also in the overall interest. Sure, sure. And um, the impact of ETH staking seems to have uh, come up again during the uh, rebalancing period. Uh, but what are the details on that? And is that, has that had a sort of like significant impact on the market, maybe ETH itself or, or other parts of the, the sort of ETH-related uh, market, you know, obviously through ERC-20s? Yeah, no, it's, it's, I mean, it's been a year since the Ethereum network switched over to its proof-of-stake consensus mechanism. And I think a lot of ETH doomers wanted to say that, you know, once you know, the Shanghai update happened, which just happened recently, you'd see a mass exodus of staked ETH. Actually, what's happened is interesting. We've seen a pretty sizable increase in staked ETH, and it's it's kind of causing a bit of a problem to some degree because a lot of the supplies in, in Ether is actually being staked right now. 
So this 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 idea of you know locking up your tokens to uh, to stake and to validate blockchains or transactions, um, it, it it creates this reward mechanism which is called the staking yield. Um, right now we're seeing that around three to four percent, depending on you know who who you're looking at or which uh, staking provider you're with. Um, but it fluctuates based on the demand, and uh, right now the demand to to stake your ETH is, is pretty high, and uh, it continues to kind of grow exponentially. So I think developers are trying to figure out how to possibly even slow down the the amount that's being staked. So we'll just have to see what happens. But it, it is um, it is not what I think the doomers were predicting. Where uh, once you opened it up with the Shanghai update and you could you know take your your ether off the the staking nodes, you would you would see this mass exodus and nobody would you know there'd be like no staking. So it's it's, it's been the opposite. So interesting to see. But let's see. If uh, you know this this new issue that we're we're facing, if it if it continues to uh, to kind of cause problems, or what kind of solutions the developer community will have for them, it's going to be a good thing to follow. Sure. J j just on that, uh, Gabe, uh, briefly, um, in terms of the actual market impact, maybe let's talk about the direct impact on ETH. How exactly is the transmission mechanism? How does it actually work in terms of the rise in staking and then the impact on price? and maybe the negative impact on price, just as you've been implying just now. Yeah, so the, the price actually is kind of trended sideways, but the way you can, as a validator, the way you entice people to stake with you is to offer them you know, a yield. And I think that if, if you have an increase in yield, you might inherently have you know more people wanting to stake with you. But from what I understand is that it can also create a riskier proposition because the greater the reward, the greater the risk. So it, that type of dynamic also exists in the staking world where typically the more well-known validators have offer lower yields, but they're the ones that you uh, that most people would trust to to not mess up you know a block or validate something wrong and potentially lose your staked ETH. So, there's that there's that reputational aspect, and there's also the aspect I think of just wherever the market yields at, and uh, you know the if the risk free rate's around five and a quarter, five and a half, um, and the staking yield is around three to four yeah. on ether, yeah. you you could see yeah. how there's a little bit of a a discount on the yield because I think there's just a lot of demand to to stake your ETH, and um, yeah. yeah, so that's it kind of gets reflected in the yield right now. Sure. Perfect. Perfect. Um, that's some golden information right there, I think. Right. So just uh, widening out our focus again, Gabe, as we've sort of been going, uh, you know, focusing on one aspect of the market broadening, let's broaden it out again and talk about um, something which I think most crypto, you know, watchers and participants will want to know, where are we in the market cycle? And, you know, we nearer the bottom, you know, have we passed the bottom? Are we now sort of, you know, heading towards an uptrend or are we basically facing another uh, downtrend based on, of course, the intelligence that is being emanated from this exercise of quarterly attribution reports? This is a great place, I think, to kind of wrap up the the pod because I think we, we can now take a step back on our, on our, uh, on our lens, zoom out and get the perspective of yeah, like you're saying, where are we at in this market cycle? And so what I did here is we just kind of compared, you know, various asset classes, you had global equities, you had global fixed income, global commodities. And we just looked at the drawdowns uh, since their their uh, 2021 peaks or watermarks. And what you can see is that 
maybe maybe crypto has outperformed year to date and a lot of folks may think okay well this rally is really overextended because you can see you know if if the, if the digital asset market as measured by our broad cap index is up over 50 percent at the time of recording um you know there's a pretty big gap when you compare it to uh the equity markets they, they might think you know there's you, you know there's maybe no no more upside potential for digital assets or there needs to be more of a retracement what's interesting that though is that if you compare it to the drawdowns on the road to recovery you'll see that the crypto market's actually been lagging its re its its recovery cycle compared to these asset classes. So if you look at the equity market, for example, if you look at the global MSCI, Acqui, you'll see that it's it's kind of a stone's throw away from being near an all-time high. When I say stone's throw, it's, you know, and it's single digits. So like seven or eight percent at the time that we did this analysis. Uh, whereas, you know, the digital assets had, uh, I think over 60 or 70 percent left to go. So um, quite a bit of a gap on, uh, you know, the, the actual recovery side for for crypto. And that leads me to uh, believe that there is still more upside potential because you've seen such a, you know, there's just such a high watermark. And people forget that that digital assets need to get to to reach all time highs. Sure, sure. Perfect. Perfect. And it's, um, you know, we still got three months to go before the end of the year. Feels like we've had a whole year already. Yeah. But yeah, that's have been amazing, Gabe, as uh, as usual. So yeah, um, uh, Gabe did mention um, the importance of the potential first Bitcoin or, I mean, it's going to be Bitcoin, let's face it, first Bitcoin ETF in the US and um, in the context of um, the appearance of our CEO, Sui Chung, on the podcast. I can't remember the episode number, but you can find that episode if you want to catch up with um, again, from from my mind, a lot of information there that you can't actually get elsewhere. If you want to catch up with that episode, navigate to the website cfbenchmarks.com, find a video, podcasts, and uh, you know you can find that episode really quite easily. Um, aside from that, of course, um, we've been doing this um, podcast on this edition, this is the QAR edition. Um, you can go to cfbenchmarks.com, go to news and insights, and then there's also a drop down. In that drop-down menu, you can find research, and in that sort of a, uh, in that sort of like button, you'll find all of the quarterly attribution reports that um, Gabe has written, including obviously the latest one. So, if you need more information, if you want more information, if you if you're interested, got any sort of like um, additional need to find more insights, the latest QAR for June to September 2023 is available there. Beyond that, of course, we do have. Um, these podcasts and you can find them all on uh, the website. Um, one special event I can mention now is that I believe most of these podcasts are now available on Spotify. We've now sort of like branched out, we're coming of age, uh, we've become, uh, you know, sort of like real podcasts if you want to put it that way. So you can actually navigate to um, Spotify on browser or if you've got the app, uh, just search for CFB Talks Digital Assets and you'll find all of the episodes that we've actually produced in this podcast. So we hope you do that and we hope you enjoy those. We do have the weekly newsletter as well, sort of like this, the shortest, um, uh, you know, shortest frequency content we do. Gabe also prepares a monthly market uh, report um, where we, he sort of produces a lot of charts and some bullet points uh, to uh, as guidance for the in investor. 
delineating the performance of markets in that monthly window. And then, of course, the quarterly attribution reports as well. Any other additional information that interested parties may need about um, CF Benchmarks or the indices that we produce are, of course, available also at cfbenchmarks.com. So, guys, um, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, big thanks to Gabe and to the team, of course. Um, we obviously couldn't do any of this without them. Uh, so big thanks to all of you guys as well. And we hope you join us for another episode of CFB Talks Digital Assets. Cheers. See you soon.